Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Brown's chicken came from humble beginnings, from being sold out of a trailer in 1949 to 100 locations in 1987. Brown's chicken was the business success story that every entrepreneur inspires to. When Kentucky Fried Chicken entered as their biggest competition, they adapted, becoming Brown's chicken and pasta and adding family-sized pasta dishes to the menu. Even after the death of John Brown, the company's founder, in late December 1992, the business continued to hold its own in the quick-service restaurant industry. The Brown's Chicken and Pasta location in Palatine, Illinois, was owned by Dick and Lynn Eilenfeld. After Dick was laid off from his job with Group W Cable in 1990, he was looking for a new job and a way to support his family. After having no luck finding employment, Dick started researching the food service industry. According to the Chicago Tribune, it was typical for an out-of-work executive to become a franchise owner, with one quarter of new franchise applications being made by former executives. Dick decided that Brown's Chicken was a good fit, and after two years of fruitlessly looking for a job, he and Lynn poured their life savings and their retirement funds into the franchise. Running the business kept both of them very busy, and the pair worked from open to close every day the restaurant was open. This meant that 16-hour days were the norm, and that they were there the night Brown's Chicken became a household name for all the wrong reasons. Come with me to Palatine, Illinois, on the freezing cold evening of January 8, 1993, when one Brown's Chicken location made headlines, not for the food that they served, but because of the brutal crime that unfolded. Michael Castro had been working at Brown's Chicken as a dishwasher and cashier, but he never shied away from doing extra to help out around the restaurant. He was a junior in high school and aspired to join the Marines when he was older. Michael was working at Brown's on January 8th, and he was expected home from his shift around 10 p.m. Michael's father and mother knew he was never home too late after he'd finished work. Manny decided to head to bed, but Epifania waited up for their son to get home. Around 11 p.m., she shook Manny awake, telling him that Michael wasn't home yet, and she was worried. Manny decided he would drive to the restaurant to check that everything was okay. Maybe Michael had car trouble, or things at the restaurant took longer to close for some reason. Michael arrived to see multiple cars in the parking lot, including the car belonging to his son, However, the car was empty and locked. Looking in the window, Manny could see that the lights were off, save for one above the counter, and the restaurant appeared to be deserted. Manny returned home, collected his wife, and the pair went to see if they could find Michael at local hangouts 
or at a friend's home. By 1 a.m., there was no sign of their son, and they decided it was time to call the police. The police told Manny that he needed to wait 24 hours to make a missing persons report, which greatly upset Manny, who was, understandably, worried about his son. Police said they would keep a lookout for Michael, but when Manny said Michael's car was still in the restaurant parking lot, officers were dispatched to check it out. Manny met the officer at the restaurant at 1.30 a.m., and again, the place looked deserted. The officer suggested that Michael was just out with some friends, or maybe he'd gotten a ride home. Defeated, the parents went home to see if Michael had been dropped off while they were out. When they returned home and found the house empty, they called the police again to update them. Now, the Castros were not the only ones looking for a loved one who hadn't returned home. Pedro, whose brother Guadalupe was working the closing shift that night, had also failed to return home. Officer Ronald Conley happened to be on scene and asked Pedro why he was there, which is when he explained that his brother had not shown up at home after his shift. After Manny called the police for the second time, Officer Conley was then dispatched to the Castro home. He saw how distraught the Castro parents were and offered to go to Brown's and have a look around to see what he could work out. Manny and Epifania followed in their own car, and they drove to the location. Officer Conley managed to gain access to the building via an employee door that had been left unlocked. In the light of Officer's Conley flashlight, Manny saw Michael's jacket as he watched through the window and went to join Officer Connolly inside. The beam from Conley's flashlight saw something else, something that Manny thankfully didn't see, a bloody mop. As Manny tried to get inside, Officer Connolly stopped him and called for backup. Officer Saxma arrived minutes later. The two officers drew their weapons and entered the building. Making their way into the kitchen, Connolly saw a hand and a foot sticking out of the walk-in freezer. When he opened the door, his worst fears were confirmed. The bodies of five people were discovered. It was later confirmed that these were the bodies of Lynn, one of the franchise owners, and Guadalupe, Rico, Michael, and Marcus, all employees of Brown's. Rico and Michael were slumped against each other, and Lynn, whose hand had been the first clue that drew the officers to the freezer, was laying in front of the stop, keeping it from closing properly. The rest of the restaurant was searched, and two more bodies, those of Dick and Thomas, were found in the walk-in cooler. It appeared that they had all died of gunshot wounds, with Lynn also having a gash across her throat and Michael having stab wounds in his abdomen. Some of the victims had bullet wounds in their hands and upper torso, suggesting they were trying to shield themselves from an attack. Sergeant Robert Jacobson arrived at the restaurant, and he entered with plastic grocery bags tied around his feet in an attempt to not compromise the scene with his shoe prints. These crude booties failed, and they filled with blood as he started to remove the bodies from the walk-in coolers. Crime scene photos show Sergeant Jacobson's shoe prints on the blood-soaked floor. Sergeant Jacobson threw out the blood-soaked shoes afterwards and failed to provide a print of them. And listeners, keep this in mind for later because it's going to come up again. Meanwhile, Manny and Epifania were told to head to the station. Once they arrived, their worst fears were confirmed. Their son, Michael, was dead. Dana Ellenfelt, the middle daughter of Dick and Lynn, was home from college and was staying with her parents that night. She had been out and arrived home around 3.30 a.m., and her parents' car was not in the driveway. Although she knew that her mom and dad put in long hours at the restaurant, she wouldn't expect them to be there in the middle of the night. Dana called the restaurant to see if her parents had been waylaid with some sort of emergency, but she got no answer. Dana's grandmother was also visiting, and the pair went to the restaurant to see what was going on. When they arrived, the parking lot was filled with police. Dana found that her parents had been the victims of a shooting, and neither had survived their injuries.
The families of the other victims were notified, and each family began to organize funerals amid their immense grief. And with the grief came questions. Why did the police wait so long to enter the building when there were relatives of two of the victims at the restaurant, saying their loved one hadn't arrived home? Why did police seemingly dismiss their concerns when they said they could see the victims' cars still in the parking lot, suggesting that they had never left the premises? Families couldn't help but wonder if their loved ones could have been saved if police had entered the building earlier. The clock in the Brown's Chicken restaurant had stopped at 9.52 p.m. It could have been due to a power failure or perhaps because a bullet ricocheted off of it. The Palatine community rallied around the families. A fund was established and over $13,500 was donated, which is $24,000 in today's money. Palatine's Rand Hill Park Cemetery donated burial spaces for each victim, and the Palatine Chamber of Commerce held meetings with restaurant owners to discuss safety measures. The funeral to farewell Dick and Lynn was held at the United Methodist Church in Columbus, Wisconsin. Dick was born Richard Earl Ellenfeld on November 10, 1942, in Portage, Wisconsin. He was the son of Donald, a laundry operator and one-time Columbus mayor, and Rachel Ellenfeld. The family were deeply religious and were members of the Methodist Church. Friends described Dick as fair, upbeat, witty, and methodical, as well as generous, funny, and kind. Dick was dedicated to his family, and he never took himself too seriously. He loved to cycle and remained an active church member his whole life. His wife, Lynn, was born Lynn Ann Weiss on October 6, 1943, in Clintonville, Wisconsin, to Father Nathan, a county judge, and Mother Joyce, a teacher. Like Dick, Lynn grew up in a deeply religious Methodist family. Lynn was described as a lovely person who was always willing to lend a hand. She volunteered with Habitat for Humanity and a reading program called The Junior Great Books. This program, once only for children considered gifted, was opened up to all children under Lynn's leadership. She wanted every child to be afforded the opportunity to be involved, and she fought to make it happen. Dick and Lynn met in college. They both attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they hit it off while organizing a Methodist supper club. The two fell in love and eloped to Iowa marrying on December 21, 1964. The newlyweds then moved to Boston, where Dick enrolled in seminary school, and Lynn worked in social services. At some point, likely when they were still in Boston for Dick's schooling, the pair ran a halfway house for women just getting out of prison. Their goal was to help the women adapt to the outside world. While living on the East Coast, the Ellenfelts welcomed three daughters. The oldest, Jennifer, who was 23 at the time of the murders, followed by Dana, who was 21, and finally Joyce, named for Lynn's mother and known as Joy, who was just 19. Their kids were the most important people in their lives, and the family was very close. Dick was required to volunteer as part of his schooling, and he chose to donate his time to the George McGovern presidential campaign. Dick discovered that he loved politics, and he left school to work on the campaign. Although the presidential campaign was unsuccessful, Dick remained working for George McGovern as his press secretary for his Senate seat. In 1976, the Ellenfelds moved back to their home state of Wisconsin, where Dick started working as a legislative liaison for Governor Martin Schreiber. Being local again meant that Dick could help his father with his campaign to become mayor of his hometown of Columbus. Meanwhile, Lynn stayed home to care for their daughters. Once they started school, she began to volunteer at the school and at the church. Dick continued to work on various political campaigns, including on projects for Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy. In 1979, he decided that he wanted to spend more time with his family, and he left politics. He began working at Group W Cable and he worked as either a government liaison or a vice president, 
The reporting on this is unclear. When the company relocated to Chicago, Dick moved too. Lynn and the kids stayed in Wisconsin, presumably not wanting to uproot the girls at that stage of their lives. Dick returned home every weekend for two years, after which it was decided that the time was right for the rest of the family to make the move to Chicago. Nine years later, in 1990, Dick was laid off. Lynn started working as a mystery shopper to bring in money, and Dick searched for a job. After two years of searching and many hours of research, Dick purchased a Brown's Chicken franchise and opened the doors at the Palatine location. As business owners, Dick and Lynn led from the front. They worked hard, from open until close, and they treated every employee like a family member. They continued to be kind and generous people, donating leftover food to the local convent. A friend said, There's a cliché about people giving you the shirt off their back. They would give you a shirt, a meal, a place to sleep, and love and compassion. 47-year-old Guadalupe Maldonado, whose brother Pedro went to Brown's the night of the murders when Guadalupe didn't return home, was buried in his native Mexico after being farewelled at Santa Teresita in Palatine. U.S. Representative for the Palatine area, Philip Crane, offered to assist with having Guadalupe's body returned home. Guadalupe was a Mexican citizen who came to the U.S. to work and save money to take back to his family so they could have a better life and his sons could receive a better education. Guadalupe would work in the U.S., then return home as soon as he had enough money so he could go back to his beloved wife, Beatriz, and their three children, Juan, Xavier, and Salvador. On his first two working visits, he was employed as a cook at Old Town. However, when he returned for a third time, the position wasn't available until spring, and he secured a job at Brown's instead. He had only been working there for a few weeks before he was murdered. His brother Pedro said that Guadalupe was a good man, but a tough man, and he was someone that would pitch in to help out. His sister Rosita said that kind and quiet Guadalupe would help out at the church when he was in town, doing jobs like clearing the snow. Beatriz, Guadalupe's wife, said that her husband lived for his family. His sons were aged 5, 10 or 11, and 13 when he died. He loved to cook, he was learning English, and enjoyed attending his English classes. He was also a keen cyclist who had won trophies for his achievements in the sport. Guadalupe also liked playing soccer and would organize fun family games. 31-year-old Marcus Nelson's funeral was held at the Algram and Sons Funeral Home. Marcus was born December 30, 1961 in Chicago to parents Diane and Travis. Marcus had served in the U.S. Navy, and during his time serving, he met Beverly, who was also in the Navy. The pair married in 1983. However, their marriage ended four years later when Marcus's drinking spiraled and he became an alcoholic. Marcus had a daughter in the mid-80s, and she was around seven at the time of his death. Marcus provided well for his daughter, sending more child support than was required. It was said that he would do anything for her. Marcus found love again and was engaged to Joy McLean, with the pair planning to marry in 1995. His fiancée described him as gentle, loving, forgiving, and spoke of his infectious smile and sense of humor, as well as his love for travel and cooking. Marcus had been working at Brown since November and wanted to get into management. He was due to attend a management training seminar the day after he was murdered. After the funeral service, he was buried at Memory Gardens Cemetery. Marcus was given a 21-gun salute, and a folded flag was given to his mother. He was buried in the Veterans Garden of Honor section of the cemetery. 32-year-old Thomas Mena's funeral was held at the Montclair Luciana Funeral Home. Thomas and his twin brother Jerry were born on April 12, 1960, in Illinois. His mother died of cancer when Thomas was just 14. Not much information is available about Thomas's family, not even the name of his mother, but he did have many siblings. Unfortunately, 
Tragedy struck the Menes family several times over the years. After losing his mother, his brother, John, died of a heart attack in 1988. The murder of Thomas marked the third time in a decade that the Menes family had come together to grieve the loss of a loved one who had died young. Thomas was described as quiet, peaceful, and loving. He was the type of person who liked a simple life, and his possessions could have fit in the trunk of a car. Thomas enjoyed playing darts, bowling, and watching television. He liked being outdoors, hunting and fishing. Although it was said he never killed any animals while out hunting, it was just an excuse to be in nature. Thomas had only been working at Brown's for two months. Unfortunately, the Menace family experienced another tragedy when, in 1999, Thomas's father, Emil, was murdered, stabbed to death by his 16-year-old neighbor. The two youngest staff members were 16-year-old Michael Castro and 17-year-old Rico Solis. Both funerals were held at the Algram and Sons Funeral Home. Michael Castro was born May 24, 1976, in Chicago, Illinois, to Manny and Epifania Castro. He was a junior at Palatine High School who had dreams of becoming a U.S. Marine. He worked at Brown's as a dishwasher and cashier but was always happy to lend a hand with whatever needed doing. He was described as kind and dedicated to his family. Epiphania said her son was a great brother and very caring to his family and friends. He had a passion for playing the piano, video games, and Star Wars. Religion was very important to Michael, and his reverend only had kind things to say about the young man. A tree was planted in a local park in Michael's honor. Rico Solis was born February 6, 1975, in Manila, Philippines, to Evelyn and Ramon. Tragically, Ramon was murdered in 1987. Following the death of her husband, Evelyn remarried and moved to the U.S. Rico and his two sisters stayed in the Philippines and lived with their grandfather. However, Rico was the main caregiver for his sisters after their mother moved abroad. Rico was very close with his sisters. They spent a lot of time together. In 1992, Rico joined his mother in the United States, excited at the prospect of starting a new life in America, a place he saw as a land of opportunity and democracy. Rico had dreams of buying a fast car and joining the military. When he arrived in the U.S., he became friends with Michael Castro, who helped him get a job at Brown's a couple of months after he arrived in the U.S. Rico saved his earnings and achieved his dream of owning a fast car, a Dodge Charger. Rico loved action movies, video games, and listening to alternative music. He was described as quiet, hardworking, and determined. As the family said goodbye, the police investigation was underway. As with all investigations, there are many aspects and many different moving parts. A task force was assembled, aptly named the Brown's Chicken Task Force, which consisted of 90 officers from Palatine and neighboring towns, and FBI after the Palatine Police Department requested their input. The task force put in 16-hour days to try and solve the murders and get answers for the families and for the community who had been rocked by the massacre. A $100,000 reward was put forward on January 25, 1993, with a billboard being erected the following month to ensure as many people knew about it as possible, in the hope that someone would come forward with information. One of the most important parts of an investigation is nailing down the timeline. They could tell that the restaurant closed at 9 p.m. on the night of the murders, and the scene showed employees had already started to close down. The registers had been closed and the trash cans had been emptied. However, one of the registers was reopened at 9.08 p.m., and the receipt showed that an order was placed for a four-piece chicken meal. We know that Dick and Lynn weren't the type to turn away people who needed help, and it wouldn't be a reach to think that they reopened the register to serve a customer who came in after closing. In a January 17, 1993 Orlando Sentinel article, it was reported that investigators had a timeline for the massacre. According to the article, 
They believed that after the restaurant closed, at least two people entered the building via a side door that was unlocked. Police believe they entered around 9:10 p.m. and were in the building for around 40 minutes. After the murderers gathered the employees together, they demanded money from the safe. It was believed that the murderers became frustrated because the safe was split into two parts, one with the petty cash and the other with a more substantial amount of money that was due to be deposited in the bank. Lynn only opened the top, the petty cash part of the safe, which is when the murderers slit her throat from ear to ear. Approximately $1200 was missing from the restaurant, which comes to over $2000 in today's money. After this, they shot the rest of the employees, then left the restaurant. Police were unsure which order the remaining people were killed in. Police believed the massacre ended around 9:52 p.m., the time the clock stopped. Another timeline was published in the Chicago Tribune on January 9, 1994, marking the one-year anniversary of the murders. There was more detail in the Tribune's timeline owing to the year that investigators had to put the timeline together. In this timeline, it was believed that Dick and Thomas were in the cooler when the murderers entered the building. Because of the insulation, they didn't hear anything that was happening outside and were unaware of the danger that lurked beyond the door. When they did realize what was happening, they hid their valuables, Dick's credit card and Thomas's watch in a box inside the cooler. Investigators believed that the other four employees, Rico, Michael, Guadalupe, and Marcus, were forced into the freezer, and the presence of stab wounds on Michael and blunt force trauma on Marcus suggested that they did not initially comply. This recount agrees that Lynn's throat was slashed because she didn't get the bank deposits out of the safe, but expands by saying that while she was likely complying, the killers felt she wasn't acting fast enough. Lynn's body was then dragged into the freezer and no less than 12 rounds were fired into the freezer. The murderers then went to the cooler where they fired more rounds, at least 5 shots, and all of the shots came from the same weapon. As the murderers were leaving, they mopped up to avoid standing in any blood and then they cut the power. Investigators didn't think the killing was well planned, if it was planned at all. We're going to take a short break to hear from this week's sponsors. Hey listeners, have you ever wanted to delve into the social or psychological causes behind true crime? Then you might like our podcast, Women in Crime. Each episode you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. It's where true crime meets criminology. I'm Megan Sachs, I'm Amy Slashberg, and we're both criminologists who spent our entire careers studying and teaching about crime. We'll cover cases involving females as criminals and as victims, but often these are one and the same. We also have conversations with subjects of well-known cases like Amanda Knox, Denise Huskins, and Lorena Bobbitt. You'll hear the stories of these women paired with the science that tells you where it all began. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women in Crime. You can listen to Women in Crime now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women A N D Crime. The next part of the investigation was the questioning of witnesses and suspects. Although the police interviewed many suspects, they were never able to pinpoint exactly who murdered seven people in the restaurant, and the case went cold until 2002. Covering the information of everyone who spoke to the police about this case would take hours, so we're only going to cover the key suspects and their connections to Brown's Chicken. The first person police looked closely at was a former employee, Martin Blake. Martin had been working at Browns until early January, right after New Year's, his employment was terminated. An anonymous caller phoned the police to say that on the night of the murders, Martin had a party at his house. However, he left the party about 9 p.m., and the time he was missing was unaccounted for. Police surrounded Martin's house, positioning themselves inside the homes of his neighbors. and arrested Martin at gunpoint. Martin Blake was held at the station for 2 days and in that time he was denied access to an attorney. One even showed up at the station, although it's unclear who sent them, perhaps a family member, but the attorney left after it was made clear that they weren't going to be able to speak to Martin. Police said that Martin didn't want a lawyer. 
but Martin said that he absolutely did want a lawyer. After he passed a lie detector test that showed he was telling the truth when he said he was out with friends at the time of the murders, he was released. Unfortunately, during the time that Martin was being held, police developed tunnel vision and failed to follow up on other leads and suspects. This lapse in time between the crime and other witnesses being interviewed means there was time for memories to fade or be altered. Martin Blake would later sue the Palatine Police Department and was awarded a nearly six-figure payout. On February 17, 1993, another former employee, Juan Luna, was questioned. Juan and his girlfriend, Ann Lockett, went to the station to speak with investigators. They only spoke to Juan and they took his finger and palm prints. He was then released. Nearly three years later, in November 1995, Juan Luna once again went to the station to speak to police. A woman named Eileen Bacala was asked to go in to answer some questions, and Juan went with her, accompanied by a man named James Degorski. Eileen told the police that she had been with both of the men on the night of the murders. She had picked the men up at the grocery store and went back to her house where they stayed the night. The next morning, they all found out about the murders. In April of 1998, a man named John Simonek was questioned. He would be questioned many times over the years, and he always denied any knowledge or involvement. Two months later, in June of 1998, Todd Wakefield was interviewed for the first of many times. Todd had been at Brown's around 9 o'clock the night of the murders, and Michael Castro had taken his order. It was likely that Todd was the last person, apart from the killers, to see the victims alive, so of course police were very interested in what he had to say. The following month, John Simonek was interviewed for a second time. He did not specifically admit to being at the Brown's Chicken restaurant the night of the crime. He was interviewed again later the same day and said that he had been at Brown's the night of the murders with his friend Todd Wakefield. John said he waited in the parking lot while Todd went in to get something to eat. John said that Todd came out with some money, but an interrogating officer told John that his story wasn't believable. When he heard that, John changed his story, saying that he went inside with Todd and used the restroom, then heard gunshots. When he exited the restroom, he said he saw bodies in the freezer in the cooler, and Todd was holding a gun. He then drove with Todd to his house. In another interview, he changed his story again, saying that he had actually fired a gun and it had hit a silver pan that hung over the fryers. During the initial investigation, it was discovered that there was a bullet impression in one of the pans. But after speaking with police, John was free to go. Todd's girlfriend, Casey, was also interviewed multiple times over the years. She worked at Brown's and said she had dreams, or rather nightmares about what had happened the night of the murders. She recounted the recurring nightmare to police, where she was in the restaurant as the victims, her co-workers, were gunned down. When the gun was turned on her, she woke up. However, during her 10th interview, on April 28, 1999, she changed her story. She said that on the night of the murders, she had been with her boyfriend, Todd Wakefield, and they had gone to Brown's around 9 p.m. She wanted to go in to talk to Lynn about her schedule. Casey said that Todd came into the restaurant with her and started talking to Michael and Rico. She said he became enraged and waved a gun around and started yelling for everyone to go to the back or he would kill them. Casey said that Todd shot everyone and she ran away, running home. Casey said that when she went in the back door, Todd was right behind her. Police told Casey about a footprint that was left behind at the scene and Casey said it was probably from her size 8 shoe. However, when the interview was concluding, Casey said that she made everything up and she just wanted to go home, and police allowed her to go home. On August 5, 1999, John Simonek was arrested. Five days later, he confessed to the murders on a 14-minute-long video. In his confession, he said that he and Todd Wakefield were responsible for the massacre. He recounted parking on the east side of the restaurant and entering through the side door, where Todd ordered some food. Five or ten minutes later, 
John said he pulled out a gun and ordered the employees into the freezer. Todd ensured they went into the freezer while John took the remaining employees into the cooler. John remembered hearing shots, the sound of Todd shooting the two people in the cooler. Todd then told John to shoot the people in the freezer, but John said he didn't want to, and Todd made him do it. John said someone was shot outside the freezer, and he didn't remember how they got out, but after they had been shot, they were returned to the freezer and were laying on its right side facing east. John said he also shot through the plastic strips of the cooler. Todd then stabbed two or three of the people in the freezer. When the men left, John noticed that one of the cooler doors was ajar. John waited in the car for Todd, who then drove him home. John told his story again to another officer, but with some changes in the details. John was released after these confessions, and he was not charged. Now that we've covered the timeline and the witness statements, some of which are very distressing, we need to talk about the physical evidence. A significant amount of evidence was collected from the scene, including fiber, hair, blood, and over 200 fingerprints. Remember I said earlier that the register had been opened at 9.08 p.m. and an order had been placed? One piece of physical evidence was the receipt indicating that the register had been reopened eight minutes after closing. The receipt showed that a four-piece chicken meal had been ordered. On January 11th, Dr. Jane Homeyer was at the scene, and it was she who discovered that the register had been reopened. She also found a four-piece chicken meal, napkins, and a paper cup in one of the trash cans. Dr. Homeyer removed the contents of the trash can and laid them out to confirm that the receipt and the contents matched. These items were bagged as evidence. Police wondered if the person who bought the meal at 9.08 was possibly the killer. Dr. Homeyer started to process the evidence on January 14th. She put the napkins in a solution that would make latent fingerprints visible. Through this process, she found one usable fingerprint, which was photographed. She attempted to find more usable prints a week later, but no more appeared. Two months later, Dr. Homeyer examined the finger and palm prints of a suspect. However, the cards were incomplete, and no match could be made. The chicken pieces taken from the trash were frozen and stored until they could be retested at a later point when technology caught up. In 1994, they were sent away and small amounts of DNA were found. Unfortunately, the amount was too small to test. The chicken returned to the freezer to again wait for technology to make it possible to test these smaller samples of DNA. In 1995, the chicken was sent to the Chicago Field Museum to again be tested. During this testing, hygiene and contamination protocol was not followed, and the chicken was allowed to partially thaw. The testing was conducted by two men who didn't wear gloves or masks on a table that was not sterile and was in a semi-public area. In 1998, the chicken was tested again, this time at the Illinois State Police Forensic Science Center. At this time, DNA was found on two of the chicken bones, and swabs were taken. Testing showed that one of the bones had produced two DNA profiles, a major profile consistent with someone eating the chicken, and a minor profile consistent with someone touching the chicken with their hands. This evidence was packed away and stored until there was a suspect to compare the DNA profile to. This terrible crime continued to grow cold, and for a couple of years, it seemed like it would never be solved. That is, until 2002, when a woman by the name of Ann Lockett told a friend she knew what happened at Brown's Chicken. Now, Ann's name came up earlier in the episode. Remember, she accompanied her boyfriend, Juan Luna, to the police station to give a statement? But at that time, Ann was not questioned. Anne's friend went to the police with the information and was interviewed on March 10th. The Palatine Police Department then contacted Anne, who agreed to speak to investigators. Anne told investigators that, after the murders, a man named James Degorski, whose name has also come up before, James called her while she was in the hospital and told her, I did something. The conversation took place on a hospital payphone. This is going to come up again later, so keep it in mind. Degorski told Anne to turn on the news, which she said she did, and she saw the coverage of the Browns' murders. Degorski never said he was involved in the murders, 
but Anne felt it was what he was implying. Two weeks later, when Anne was out of the hospital, she was visiting Degorski as well as John Luna. This is another familiar name. He was there as well. The men told Anne they wanted to ice somebody. Degorski had been the one to suggest Browns, as he used to work there and he knew the layout and how things were run. They drove to Browns in Degorski's car and parked it behind the shopping center. Trudging through the snow, they entered the restaurant, ordered, and sat down to eat. Degorski said he was getting frustrated with Luna because he was getting grease on his hands as he ate, and he was worried about leaving behind evidence. After they were done, they went to the bathroom, put on gloves, and exited armed with a knife and a thirty-eight caliber weapon. One of the employees' fight-or-flight response kicked in, and they tried to jump over the counter to get away. That's when a shot rang out. Degorski continued his story, saying that he slit a woman's throat and described them shooting the others. They even included the detail of one victim throwing up French fries after they had been shot. Once the massacre was over, they mopped the floor, picked up the shell casings, and threw the gun into the Fox River. Police found Anne's statement to be credible, and on April 3, 2002, police paid Juan Luna a house call. Luna submitted to DNA testing, and a swab was collected the same day. Near the end of the month, Luna's prints were collected, and he denied having anything to do with the massacre at Brown's Chicken. So, listeners, remember how DNA was collected from the chicken found in the trash and stored until there was something to compare it to? Well, we now have the something, the someone, and Luna's DNA was run against the samples taken from the chicken. According to the expert who ran the samples, Luna's DNA was a match. The expert said, The profile would be expected to occur in 1 and 139 trillion black, 1 in 8.9 trillion Caucasian, and 1 in 2.8 trillion Hispanic individuals. Along with the DNA, one of the latent fingerprints from a napkin was compared with Luna, and, once again, it was found to be a match. The police had their man, or at least one of them. Luna was arrested, and the investigation now focused on James Degorski. Police learned that Anne wasn't the only person Degorski had told about the murders. He also confided in Eileen Bacala. In Eileen's original statement to the police, she said that she had been with Degorski and Luna the night of the murders, providing them with an alibi. When police told her about what they knew, she admitted that she'd lied in her first statement. In Eileen's new statement, she said that, on the night of the murders, Degorski called her and asked her to meet him and Luna in a grocery store parking lot in Carpentersville, Illinois, which was around 15 miles from Palatine. Degorski told Eileen that he had done something big. Eileen left work around 9.30 and went to meet the men as she was asked. She noticed green rubber gloves in Degorski's car when she met them. Degorski and Luna got into Eileen's car holding a money bag, and she drove toward her house. When she asked about the money bag, she was told it was money from a robbery at Brown's Chicken. At Eileen's house, Degorski and Luna divided up the money, and Degorski gave Eileen $50 that he owed her. After a few hours, Eileen drove Luna home. Then she and Degorski drove past Brown's. That's when Degorski told her that Luna had gone ballistic and started killing people, slit the owner's throat from ear to ear, and put the rest of the employees in the cooler and in the freezer. Degorski then said that Luna shot four people in the cooler and then gave him the gun, and Degorski went into the freezer and shot the two people in there. He said they wore gloves, mopped up, and threw the gun in the Fox River. Eileen and Degorski then went back to Eileen's where he stayed the night. The next day, Eileen helped Degorski to clean out his car at a car wash. Police needed more than the say-so of two witnesses before they arrested Degorski, and, unlike with Luna, there didn't seem to be any physical evidence linking him to the scene. Police got Anne to talk to Degorski on the phone while they recorded, and Anne said that the police were asking her about the massacre and she didn't know what she should do. Degorski kept telling her that he didn't know what she was talking about. Police decided they would bring Degorski in for questioning. At this time, he was living in Indianapolis with his brother, so investigators went to collect him. 
Palatine undercover officers had already been in town keeping tabs on him. Around 2 p.m. on May 16, 2002, officers staked out a parking lot where Degorski's work vehicle was kept, knowing he would arrive to get it. According to police, by 3.30 p.m., Degorski had arrived and he was asked to go to Palatine to answer questions, which he agreed to. However, Degorski maintains that he was not given the option of not going with the police. On the way to Palatine, they had to divert to the Streamwood Police Department as the media had found out that a suspect was being transported to Palatine, and police wanted to avoid the press catching wind of anything. They arrived at Streamwood at 8 p.m., and Degorski was read his Miranda rights in the interrogation room. After being told that he was a suspect in the Browns' murders, Degorski quickly admitted his guilt and expressed remorse. He then told the investigators everything. Later that same night, he recounted the events of January 8, 1993, to Assistant State Attorney Mike McHale. McHale had been brought in to speak with Degorski. When McHale arrived, Degorski was read his rights again, and it was explained that Mr. McHale was not his attorney, he was a state attorney. Degorski said that he and Luna drove to Brown's in his Ford Tempo, planning on robbing it. They had picked Brown's because Luna had worked there, and he had chosen to go around 9 p.m. so there would be fewer employees. They even sat in the car and watched people leave before making their move. The pair entered the restaurant, Degorski armed with a concealed 38 and a knife. Luna ordered a meal, and they sat to eat. According to Degorski, Luna was surprised that there were seven people closing that night. He had expected a smaller staff. After he ate, Luna gave Degorski a pair of green rubber gloves and announced they were going to rob the restaurant. An employee who had been mopping offered the men money, but they rejected it. A warning shot was fired by Degorski, and he ordered everyone to go into the back. Degorski said that he shot two older men who were kneeling and facing the wall in one of the walk-in coolers before he reloaded the gun and handed it to Luna. Degorski mopped the floors and said that Luna slit Lynn's throat and killed the rest of the employees and then turned off the lights. They put the money into the bag and left the restaurant. They drove the 20-plus miles to the Carpentersville Dam and threw the weapons and shell casing into the Fox River. The weapons have never been recovered. This is the point where Luna and Degorski met up with Eileen Bacala. Degorski said that Eileen was the only person he told about the murders. However, he later admitted that he'd told Anne, too. Luna was incredibly unhappy about Degorski telling others what they'd done. Degorski told King that the employees were nice, but he killed them because he wanted to do something big. Degorski agreed to a videotaped confession, but as the questioning had started at 8 p.m. and had gone through the night, he asked if he could get some sleep first. The officer agreed and returned at 4 p.m. with a video camera. The taping started at 4.13 p.m., and Degorski once again recounted the night of the massacre in detail. He was read his rights again and asked to stop the tape, saying he would say everything he needed to say in court. When the taping stopped, Degorski was charged with 21 counts of first-degree murder and was transported to Cook County Jail. Not long after he arrived at Cook County Jail, his jaw was broken by a correctional officer. While being treated by a paramedic, he spoke openly to her about why he was there and what he had done. The same day that Degorski was detained and arrested, police zeroed in on Juan Luna. They found him at a gas station and he was taken into custody. Luna's young son was in the backseat at the time of the arrest. Luna was taken to Hoffman Estates Police Station for questioning. The official reason for taking him to Hoffman Estates instead of Palatine was because the interrogation room at Hoffman was bigger. However, it was believed that this was a way to question him without his family or a defense attorney being able to find him. He did not sign a Miranda rights waiver, although police said he was told his Miranda rights. Luna claims that he was physically assaulted by an officer at the station, and during the interrogation, he was told that if he didn't confess, he would never see his son again. Interrogators told Luna that a confession would get him released and he could see his son. He then spent the next four hours confessing to the murders and recounting the night of the crime. 
In the early hours of May 17th, this confession was videotaped. The taping included the reading of Luna's Miranda rights and an indication that Luna understood them. In Luna's confession, he recounted a very similar story to Degorski. Browns was chosen as the target for a robbery because, as a former employee, Luna knew there was no alarm system and they waited until 9 p.m. so there would be the least people and the most money on the premises. Luna admitted to being the one that slit Lynn's throat because he got caught up in the moment. He said that Degorski shot an employee and took him into the cooler, then took Dick to the same cooler and killed him. Luna also said that Degorski fired most of the shots into the other cooler, and Luna only fired one. Degorski checked that everyone was dead by poking them with a broomstick and kicking them. Then the pair left, pulling the circuit breaker on the way out and locking the doors so it looked like the restaurant had been closed. After the video confession, Luna's palm prints were taken, and one was found to be a match to a napkin found at the scene. With both suspects under arrest, the court proceedings could get underway. The jury selection for Luna's trial started March 28, 2007, at the Cook County Circuit Court. After the nine men and three women were selected, the trial began April 13th, with Judge Vincent Gaughan presiding. After the prosecution accidentally referred to the massacre taking place at Burger King instead of Brown's Chicken in their opening statement, the prosecution laid out their case. They said that the murders were premeditated. If this was actually a robbery, they would not have been armed with pockets full of bullets. The prosecution brought up that, as a former employee, Luna knew the layout of the restaurant as well as the systems and procedures. The prosecution had the videotaped confession, the DNA from the chicken, and the prints and DNA from the napkin to tie Luna to the crime. They pointed out that the confession included information only the killer would know, such as one of the victims vomiting up French fries, as that had not been released to the public. They theorized that Michael and Lynn were both stabbed as well as shot because they both knew Luna and could identify him. Luna needed to make sure that they were dead. Luna's four defense attorneys set about planting the seeds of reasonable doubt. The defense reminded the jury that Luna was 18 and had no criminal history at the time of the massacre. They said that the confession was coerced and did not match the details of the case, and said the DNA match wasn't as close of a match as the prosecution made it out to be. They brought up the reliability of the witnesses, saying that Anne and Eileen were both addicts. The defense brought up the false confession of John Simonek, and argued that if they could get one man to falsely confess, they could certainly get Luna to do it. The DNA evidence was called into question, as the DNA found on the chicken only matched nine alleles, which made the match to Luna more like one in 200,000, rather than what they had said earlier. The new figures meant that the DNA could potentially match nearly 50,000 people in Illinois alone. The defense continued, saying that even if the DNA was Luna's, there was no proof that the chicken was from the night of the murder. They also talked about fingerprint evidence, saying that the print was lifted was small, and it wasn't immediately clear to forensic scientists whether it was a fingerprint or a palm print, and the print matched Luna's left palm, which is the print that was collected after his arrest, not during the initial print collection back in the 90s. The defense said that over 100 fingerprints were lifted from the restaurant during evidence collection, and not all of them were matched. So the defense suggested that one of those prints could belong to the killer. There had been other mistakes made with the fingerprint matches during the case, so it was argued that this match to Luna, well, it could also be a mistake. There were testimonies from both Ann Lockett and Eileen Bacala for both this trial and for Degorski's. As their testimonies were nearly identical for both trials, I'm not going to talk about them here, and I will talk about them uh, as part of Degorski's trial. On May 9, 2007, jury deliberations began. They were sequestered overnight, and during that time, a juror required medication that he didn't tell anyone about until the next day. That juror was dismissed, and an alternate juror joined the deliberations. After six hours, they delivered their verdict guilty on seven counts of first-degree murder. The jury deliberated about whether or not they would recommend the death penalty, and they found that he was eligible for it. However, 
they didn't agree about some of the aggravating factors that would make him eligible. During sentencing, victim impact statements were read, and the statement from the Ellen Feltz said, they didn't believe in the death penalty, and they did not want Luna sentenced to death. The defense had psychologist Bruce Frumkin testify that Luna told him he had smoked five marijuana cigarettes, taken speed, and drank several beers before he went to Brown's. Due to all of this, he likely had a reduced mental capacity at the time, and that in the five years before the murders, he had spent more time with Degorski and had used more drugs and alcohol. After speaking with people who knew Luna, they said that he was short-tempered when he was under the influence. Dr. Frumkin also brought up that Luna had no infractions during his incarceration thus far. Assistant State Attorney Linus Calisius told the jury that Luna had a history of abusing animals and had left threatening voicemail for an ex of Degorski calling her names and threatening her family. The assistant state attorney said, You don't think that's psychopathic behavior? The jury could not reach a unanimous decision about if Luna should receive the death penalty, so he was instead sentenced to life in prison. Luna appealed, saying some of the evidence used in the trial should have been omitted, and saying he didn't receive a fair trial due to comments that were made by the prosecution during closing arguments. His appeal was denied, and his conviction and sentence were affirmed. The wheels of justice turned slowly, and the jury wasn't selected for Degorski's trial until 2009. In the intervening years, there were petitions filed to suppress the confessions and to quash the arrest and suppress evidence. While the court did not grant the motion to quash arrest or suppress evidence, they did grant part of his motion to suppress the confessions. While the initial statement given would be admissible, the videotaped one would not be. Since Degorski agreed that his statement was correct, then he was given his Miranda rights, the court felt like too much time elapsed between the last time Degorski was given his rights and when the statement was videotaped. Because the Miranda rights were given after the admission that the statement was correct, it was inadmissible. But then the state appealed the circuit court's decision and won. The appellate court reversed the circuit court's decision regarding the videotaped statement because the statement was taken in accordance with the law. Only around 18 hours had passed between the two Miranda rights, which is completely legal. After the jury of six men and six women were selected, the trial began in August 2009 with opening statements being presented on August 31st. With no physical evidence and no confession tape, the prosecution relied on the testimony of Ann Lockett and Eileen Bacala, as well as the testimony of the paramedic who attended to Degorski's broken jaw at the jail. Degorski's defense attorneys pointed out the lack of physical evidence and called the statements given by Anne and Eileen, as well as the interrogating officer and the assistant state's attorney, false. The defense said that Luna was the culprit and he worked with an unknown person to commit the crime. Many witnesses testified during the trial. Sergeant Jacobson, who was one of the first on the scene, was asked about the footprints in the cooler. He said they were from him when his homemade booties failed and admitted that he threw the shoes out and didn't provide any of the shoe details so they could be linked to him in the investigation. A video recording from the night of the murders was played that showed Sergeant Jacobson removing the bodies from the freezer and showing where he could have left footprints. Mike McHale, who was now a judge, testified about the confession Degorski gave. When asked if he thought it was reliable, he said that it was. Eileen testified about the phone call she received from Degorski after the massacre, and the person who sold Degorski the gun and ammo confirmed the details of the transaction. Ann Lockett was the prosecution's star witness, and everything hinged on her testimony. Her testimony included information that hadn't previously been shared, such as how she and Degorski had been an item and she had been friends with Luna and Eileen. Anne told about the phone calls she got from Degorski when she was in the hospital and revealed that she had been admitted following an attempt on her own life. When she got out of hospital on January 25th, she went to Degorski's house to see him and Luna. Anne said that Degorski told her everything that had happened 
as he had only alluded to it during the phone call, including how Luna had told him he wanted to kill someone, and he had got along with it. Degorski said he'd already told Eileen because he needed an alibi. Anne's testimony included extra details about the massacre, such as how the back door had been wedged closed from the outside, so it couldn't be opened by any employees trying to escape. Anne said that after she'd been told all the details, the men told her they would kill her if she told anyone. In fear for her life, she didn't say a word, and even posed as Luna's girlfriend when he went to give his first statement to the police. The paramedic who treated Degorski's broken jaw said that she had asked him why he would kill seven people, and asked if he was under the influence of anything at the time. Degorski told her that he was stone-cold sober and had killed them just for fun. John Simonek, who was questioned as a suspect in the massacre, recounted his interrogation that ended in him giving a false confession. He said that he wasn't allowed to make any phone calls until he confessed, so he started to make up a story using facts he'd read about in the newspaper. He said that when he got something wrong, he was told it wasn't what happened, and he would alter his story to suit. Casey Sander Hafes, the woman who gave a false statement that implicated John and his friend Todd in the massacre, testified about her experience. For context, she told the court she was 17 at the time of the killings, and she had actually been rostered to work that night, but gave her shift to Rico Solis, who wanted more hours. She said that after the massacre, she had been contacted by the police more than 20 times. She said they started out friendly, but ended up becoming nasty and mean. During her interview on April 28, 1999, police told her that her recurring nightmare was actually what happened, and her brain had turned it into a dream. During that interview, she was held from 6 p.m., just after she got off work, until 2 a.m. with no food, telling her she wouldn't leave until she'd told the truth. She said that the interrogating officer screamed at her, and she began to question if they were right. After that interview, she hired an attorney who ensured there were no more police interviews. At the end of the trial, the jury returned their verdict, guilty on seven counts of first-degree murder. Although he was eligible for the death penalty, the jury needed to unanimously recommend that sentence. And it was not the case. They had two jurors who disagreed, and Degorski was sentenced to life without parole. In the coming years, there were many appeals, and that's pretty normal with murder convictions. On direct appeal, the conviction and sentence was affirmed, and a 2013 appeal where Degorski claimed that he didn't get a fair trial due to the testimony of Judge McHale and the video of the bodies being removed from the cooler being shown to the jury, this appeal was denied. In a 2016 appeal which claimed ineffective counsel, Degorski claimed that the $100,000 reward money was shared between Anne and her friend that went to police. The reward money was only to be paid after a conviction or convictions, which gave Anne a reason to lie. The appeal stated that Anne was focused on receiving the reward money soon after the massacre and asked her then-boyfriend, Richard Billick, if he had heard anything about who may have done it and asked that he tell her if he did hear. Anne and Richard met at the psychiatric hospital and had been together for about three months, breaking up soon after the massacre. Richard said that, during their relationship, Anne never mentioned Degorski. Richard was questioned by the police three times in relation to the massacre. Additionally, the appeal brought some details of the phone call Anne received in hospital into question. According to Anne's hospital roommate, Patients who were on suicide watch were only allowed to take phone calls at the nurse's station, and then the phone calls had to be from immediate family. So how did Anne speak to Degorski on a payphone? The roommate also pointed out that there were no TVs in patient rooms, and psychiatric patients were not allowed into spaces with televisions, which would mean that Anne couldn't have watched news coverage of the massacre. Additionally, a 1992 psychiatric report said that Anne was significantly dishonest and prone to lying, but this was not entered into evidence. None of the information about Anne was brought up at trial, information that could potentially have discredited the prosecution's star witness. In addition, the defense failed to bring up that Degorski didn't actually go willingly with the Palatine police when he was picked up in Indianapolis 
He said he was forced into the car and was not allowed to collect his belongings. In the aftermath of the massacre, the Ellenfeld Memorial Scholarship was founded. This is given to high school or community college students who show leadership skills while excelling in school and taking part in community activities. The Palatine Brown's Chicken location was demolished in 2001. The families of Michael Castro and Rico Solis sued Browns for not doing enough to protect their employees. The court ruled in favor of the restaurant, saying it was up to the franchise owners to provide security for their store. The company did install cameras at all of their locations and reminded franchise owners about the importance of safety, but that was the extent of their input. At the time of this recording, James Degorski and Juan Luna are incarcerated at the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois. Their appeals have, so far, been unsuccessful, and there is little chance of either of them being released. There will be no episode on July 1st. I'm taking a little break. Watch for Already Gone to return on Saturday, July 15th with an all-new episode. As always, I appreciate you listening, and please... Be safe. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.